Hello, I'm Don Mockholz, and you're listening to Looking Up with Don. This is the Looking Up with Don podcast, episode number 125, for the week of May 25th, 2022. The related website for this podcast is donmacholtz.com. That is spelled D-O-N-M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z.com. Two H's. What's up in the sky this week? As our week begins on Wednesday, May 25th, the moon will be a crescent in our morning sky. On May 26th, the moon passes by the planet Venus. Some of you, those living in Asia and Indonesia, may see the moon pass in front of Venus. By next Tuesday, May 31st, the moon will be just past new phase. It will be a new moon on May 30th at 1129 Universal Time. Try observing the thin lunar crescent this weekend as the Southern Hemisphere is favored on the mornings of May 29th and May 30th. The Northern Hemisphere is favored for seeing it in the Western sky on the evenings of May 30th and May 31st. Mars and Jupiter will be within a degree of each other on Sunday, May 29th. They are in the morning sky. On Monday evening, May 30th, until Tuesday morning, May 31st, there may be a storm of meteors, or maybe not. In the U.S., that is Memorial Day evening. The meteor shower is known as a tall Hercules, and it is leftover material from Comet Schwarzman-Wachmann 3, discovered in 1930. An outburst of this comet in 1995 may have deposited materials in an orbit that will bring those meteors into our atmosphere at 5.04 Universal Time on May 31st. In the United States, that translates to 1.04 a.m. in the Eastern Time Zone and 10.04 p.m. Pacific time zone on Monday evening, May 30th. The shower may last only an hour, so do not miss out on this one. The radiant, the place from where the meteors appear to come from, is near the star Arcturus. It's not in Hercules. The moon will not be a factor that night because it sets shortly after sunset. Three things must occur for a meteor storm to develop. One, a large number of particles must have been expelled from the comet when it split up in 1995. Secondly, they would have to have been sent away from the comet in the backwards direction along its path. So they would eventually seek a lower orbit, then speed up and get ahead of the comet. Third, they must be ejected from the comet in 1995 at a speed of at least 60 miles per hour. 
The meteors will be catching up with us as we orbit the sun, so they will be moving slowly. As a result, they are unlikely to be very bright unless some larger pebbles are involved. So get out an hour before the peak and get used to the dark skies. Let's hope for the best. It is a matter of watching and waiting. I typically record and release these podcasts each Monday, but next week, due to the potential meteor shower, I do not expect to have it out until Tuesday, May 31st. Now, will you be able to see the International Space Station this week, which for our purposes begins Wednesday, May 25th through Tuesday, May 31st? It depends upon where you are located. This week, we have four zones. All you need to know is your latitude. Two zones will not see the ISS this week. Those north of 57 degrees north will not see it. And a big area of the Earth, those between 33 degrees south and 25 degrees north will also not see it. But between 25 and 57 degrees north, the International Space Station will be in your evening sky for at least part of the week. Now, if you live in the midsection of this area, around latitude 35 to 50, it will be in your evening sky for the whole week, and sometimes you can see it twice per night. And south of 34 degrees south, the ISS will be in your morning sky for at least part of the week. To determine where you can see it, go to the website heavens-above.com and enter your location, then click on ISS. This is our last week to see Comet C-2019-L3 Atlas in our evening sky. It is magnitude 11. Soon, a bright moon will be in the evening sky, then after that, it will be too close to the sun as seen from the Earth. Up all night, is Comet 2017 K2 Panstars. It is still about magnitude 9. These comets are plotted on Podcast 125 Map 1, but for more accurate positions, go to heavens-above.com, then click on Comets. This year, I'm relating the story of each of my visual comet discoveries near the time of the year that they were discovered. This story is about my second comet discovery, taking place on May 27, 1985. The story with pictures can be found on my website, donmockholtz.com. I will be reading parts of that story, and I'll also be adding in things not on the original written account. After my first comet discovery in 1978, I did wonder if I should continue searching. I had already found a comet, and I now knew what it was like. And it was okay. I wondered if I was being greedy by keeping up the search like, who needs more than one comet? 
But I also realized it wasn't just about finding a comet. It was the searching that I enjoyed so much. And by now I had a system of searching that was giving me a lot of time at the telescope. And I saw no reason to stop. So I continued. Years pass. It was my late wife, Laura, who suggested we start going to astronomy events. She suggested the Riverside Telescope Makers Conference held each Memorial Day weekend in Southern California. So we went in 1982 and decided to go again in 1985. I had just finished writing my book, A Decade of Comets, which, by the way, you can download for free at my website. And this book was self-published. I had just picked up a bunch of copies, and I thought this would be a good time to sell it at the conference. The conference is more like a star party. It's held each year at Camp Oaks, so YMCA camp, near Big Bear City in Southern California. This year, over 1,300 individuals attended this Memorial Day weekend gathering, which has been held every year since 1969. A couple years ago, after 51 years, it, they stopped holding it. Every, every year, they have astronomers giving talks, a lot of them amateur astronomers, and this year, 1985, the talk was about telescopes, photography, computers, and Halley's Comet, which most of us will be observing before the end of that year. I gave a talk on telescopes used to find comets. We were also selling my book, A Decade of Comets, and my wife, Laura, and I set up a card table along one of the dirt roads near the center of the event. The first day when we were there, after the end of the day, we took our books and left our chair and table at the location to save our place. This is what people usually did. The next morning, the table was missing. I walked around and found a guy with it, using it to display his stuff. I asked him why he took our table. He said, well, you weren't using it. <laughs> so I got my table back. The next day, we were sitting at the table, my wife and I, and he happened to drive by. He stuck his head out the car window and said, nice table. <laughs> Funny. My wife and I were actually staying at the Motel 6 in Big Bear City, about 10 miles away. My first mo full morning there, Saturday, May 25th, I did some comet hunting at the conference. Saturday night, we slept at the motel, and now Sunday night, we were staying again at the conference grounds, with Laura and I sleeping in the back of our pickup truck under the camper shell. Someone else had parked near my telescope, so we had to settle in about 100 yards away. My plan for that morning, Monday morning, May 27th, is that I would get up about 1 a.m., comet hunt, continue to stay awake, then I would pack up the telescope 
and we would go to the motel and get the rest of our stuff, then drive the 10-hour trip home. So now I'm fully dressed. I open up the back window of the camper shell, and leaving behind my sleeping wife, Laura, I stepped out into the cold air. The moon was still up and casting light upon the landscape. Soon it would be setting, and I would begin searching for a new comet. I wanted to gander around to see what other people were doing at that time of night. I walked down the dirt road known as Telescope Alley and into the next area known as the Telescope Field. Many of the hundred of telescopes were gone, their owners having already left or packed for an early getaway in a few hours. Those telescopes remaining were being put to good use some searching for faint galaxies or nebula, others being used to show heavenly wonders to friends. Many new friendships are made each year at the conference. Often under these dark skies where the faces are not seen, and we learn to recognize the voice. Here is a place where astronomy is both enjoyed and shared. I turned and started walking back toward Telescope Alley. My telescope was set up near the end, the east uh, end of the alley along the bushes on the right. The instrument is a reflecting type of telescope. It uses a mirror 10 inches across, which focuses at a distance of 38.2 inches meaning the focal ratio is 3.82. This is a short ratio of focal length to mere diameter, but it does allow for a wide field of view. In this instance, however, I had placed a cardboard cutout in the eyepiece, giving a field of view 1.6 degrees across. Now, telescopes usually have round fields, but I believe a square field has some advantages for comet hunting. The eyepiece gives a magnification of 32, and while the optics were commercially made, the rest of the telescope is homemade. Its first construction took place in 1975, and I redesigned it in July 1981. The complete optical system is now mounted on an alt-azimuth mount made of galvanized pipes. With this type of mount, I can sweep parallel to the horizon. This allows for more efficient comet hunting since comets are often found near the horizon. Three years ago, on my first trip to Riverside, this telescope won the Warren Estes Award given each year for a telescope made of simple materials. This year, I did not enter the telescope. I had brought it only so I could continue my comet hunting while on this four-day vacation. At 1.25 on this morning, May 27, 1985, I began comet hunting session number 1385. Now, this started just like any other with anticipation and excitement because I never know just what I will find while comet hunting. 
My first sweep was at an altitude of about 45 degrees. My goal was to cover the eastern sky from the celestial equator to 40 degrees north. Now this requires peering through the telescope as I pushed it northward. During that time, I would be looking for anything faint and fuzzy gliding through the field of view as I moved the telescope. Such an object could be a new comet. More often, these would be clusters, nebula, and galaxies, or perhaps small groups of faint stars. I had discovered my first comet on September 12, 1978, nearly eight years before. It had taken 3.75 years and 1,700 hours to find that comet. Now, I have been looking for more than that amount of time for my second comet. That first comet was found from a mountain called Loma Prieta in the Santa Cruz Mountains, 30 minutes south of my home in San Jose. But this morning, I am over 400 miles south of my house at an elevation of 7,700 feet. The telescopic views were great. I swept up the Veil Nebula in Cygnus with all of its delicate beauty. I also saw a globular cluster named 6740 and a wonderful open star cluster known as M11. With each sweep, I moved closer and closer to the horizon, which, ideally, I would reach just as the sky was beginning to brighten. Shortly after 3 a.m., I stepped back from the telescope, removed my eye patch, put on my glasses, and looked around the night sky. Now, this was a perfect night for comet hunting. Being far from city lights, the stars and Milky Way stood out in high contrast to the dark background. Only under such conditions can astronomers carry out many of their programs. I commented to my friend, Darwin Paulus, on the darkness of the sky. He was now observing with his 8-inch reflector about 20 yards from me, examining objects in the southern Milky Way. He was having a good night, too. As I continued to sweep, I observed a faint galaxy known as NGC 185. Moving over a field, I also examined NGC 147, another galaxy which is fainter than 185. Because of the lights of San Jose, I do not often see these two objects from my site at Loma Prieta, but they were easily visible from here. On my next sweep, I saw the majestic Andromeda Galaxy. It more than filled my field of view. But I could not gaze for long. I had to keep sweeping, and dawn was approaching. About three sweeps later, at 4.13, I picked up a fuzzy object, not too faint, which suddenly aroused my suspicion. It was in a part of the sky where I knew there were no galaxies or clusters, and it appeared pearly white like a comet. I stopped my sweeping and started my work of determining the nature of the object. Foremost, I had to know exactly where my telescope was pointed. This was needed for two reasons. First, to check my charts 
to see if the Skelnate Placo Atlas showed no known objects, and I placed a small pencil mark at its position on the map. Next, I had to check for motion. A comet will move against the background stars, so I drew a map and hoped to detect motion. Meanwhile, I made a quick measurement of its position and checked my more extensive catalog. It did not list any known objects in that position. With dawn nearly upon us, I made a few more checks. A Barlow lens, doubling the magnification, showed the object to be fuzzy and elongated, and it was not a small group of stars. Next, I tried a comet filter. With it, some comets will appear more visible as the background is darkened. Any other object will just appear fainter. This object was more visible, which would seem to indicate it was a comet. By now, it was difficult to see the object and the sky was rapidly brightening. Furthermore, I had not yet detected any motion. The 27-degree temperature was nipping at my hands because I removed my gloves when I spotted the object some 20 minutes earlier. I felt sure that I had discovered a comet, and yet the lack of motion prevented me from being absolutely certain. I had searched for 1,742 hours since my first comet find. I went to the truck and woke up Laura. Laura, I said, I think I found a comet. She woke up immediately. Reporting the comet was nearly as hard as finding it. I merely had to call the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the clearinghouse for comet discoveries. We knew of only one phone at the camp. This was long before cell phones. That one phone, though, was a pay phone at Combs Lodge. After writing up the telegram and walking a quarter mile to the phone, I had trouble getting through to the operator. The phone finally jammed, and so we had to move on. I tried looking for a few of the comet hunters there, but at 5 a.m. they could not be found. I was doing that because maybe they would know of some known periodic comet in that part of the sky. Or perhaps they would know of a recent discovery in that region. I could hardly believe that a bright comet of magnitude 9.3 would still be undiscovered. Alan Hale has later said that he heard me calling his name, but he was sleepy and did not respond. Unable to find anyone, we had no choice but to pack up and go to our motel in Big Bear City, 10 miles away. Following an hour of telescope disassembly, and Darwin, his, his friend of ours, his car occasionally quitting, and a hurried drive, we arrived at the Motel 6 lobby. Our luck was unchanged. Western Union, which would send the telegram to the Smithsonian, was not answering the phones. Meanwhile, this being a holiday, Memorial Day, no one was at the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory to take the discovery message. I tried to call the Smithsonian director, Dr. Brian Marsden, 
at home, but his number was not listed. Suddenly, among my notes, Laura found his home phone number. (laughs) I tried it. Dr. Marsden answered, said that he had no reports of a comet being found, and he could not recall any periodic comets in the region. He took my message and said he'll try to get someone to confirm that it was indeed a new comet. I said, I'll, I'll try to do the same tomorrow morning once I get back back home. Then it was back to our rooms for a quick shower, packing, and then out to breakfast. Our 10-hour drive home brought us from the clear morning skies of Big Bear to the cloudy skies of San Jose. Upon arriving home, I called the late Jerry Ratley of Phoenix, Arizona. I also called Jack Marling of Livermore, California. And I called the observers at nearby Lick Observatory, asking them to observe the object and confirm it. Also, when we arrived home, waiting for us in the mail was a rejection letter for an employment position that I had applied for at the Lake Afton Observatory in Wichita, Kansas. I saw the ad in Sky and Telescope magazine a couple months before, and I applied for the position of presenting star parties at the observatory. I wanted this job, but I guess it wasn't meant to be. The next morning saw Rich Page, my friend, astronomer friend in that area, Laura and I on Loma Prieta sitting in the clouds. Finally, it began to clear, and near 3.30 a.m., we set up our telescopes and began to search. After a few minutes, I found this object one and a half degrees east-northeast of the previous day's position. It was a comet. Rich then found it, too, and we showed it to Laura. We were all happy. (laughs) Meanwhile, Charles Morris and Alan Hale of the Los Angeles area had received word from the Smithsonian via Steve Edberg of my possible discovery. Following only a few hours of sleep, they went to a nearby observing site and confirmed the existence of the comet. A preliminary orbit showed the comet will be nearest the sun on June 28, 1985, at a distance of only 10 million miles. According to my recent study, A Decade of Comets, I found that none of the 33 comets found by amateurs during the previous decade came as close to the sun as this comet. Until June 15th, it continued to brighten in the morning sky, and then we lost it in the solar glare. Around April 10th, it was expected to emerge into our evening sky, then fade rapidly. However, that was not to be. The comet rounded the sun, and when it entered the evening sky, it was nearly invisible. It apparently had disintegrated, and only a tiny fragment was left of the comet. I was the only person to visually discover a comet in 1985, and also the next year, the only person to visually discover a comet in 1986. In 1987, there were seven comets visually found, and I found none of them, so go figure. By the way, 
After the comet find was confirmed on May 28th, I prepared for a few interviews that typically follow an amateur comet discovery. My car radiator was overheating and causing a problem, but I prepared by mowing the lawn, cleaning the house, and I cleared my schedule for potential interviews, but nothing happened. Now, I was okay with that, but what I wanted to know is if this meant the press had heard and wasn't interested, again, I was okay with that, or if they just did not yet know and I would have to be rescheduling the next few days when they do find out and want interviews. And I still had to get my radiator fixed, which would mean maybe for a day or two I wouldn't have a vehicle. So I phoned a friend of mine, Andy Fracknoy of the Astronomical Society of the Pacific. He has his finger on the pulse of the San Francisco Bay Area media when it comes to astronomy. I, I just wanted to see what was going on. My question was this. Do they know about it and decided not to contact me? Or do they just not know about it and should I expect a flurry storm within the next week or so? He said he would find out what's going on. Apparently, they did not know about it. And when he told them, the next week I was very busy with interviews. One more thing about this story. This comet was discovered at Camp Oaks at Big Bear City in Southern California. There is now a plaque there commemorating my discovery of this comet. I hear it was David Levy who suggested it within the next year. And the year after that, it was put into place and dedicated. I have a picture, I believe, on my website of Dr. Brian Marsden with me standing next to it and David Levy and me standing next to it. That plaque is still there, or at least it was when I last saw it in 2019. So in those intervening years between 86 when it was dedicated and 2019, I attended Riverside Telescope Makers uh, Convention a few times. And when I went, I could usually ask to get that site, although I didn't know about that right away. And the next two times I went, I, I was somewhere else. But I would walk around and look for that plaque. And oddly enough, those two times that I looked for it, I could not find it very easily because the people who were camping at that site covered it with a towel so nobody would be coming by bothering them. But anyway, that plaque is still there commemorating the discovery of that comet from that site. Thank you for listening to my story of the discovery of my second comet on May 27, 1985. This week we pick up looking at more galaxies, the Messier galaxies in the constellation Virgo. Refer to podcast 125, map 3, for help in finding these objects. We left off at M84 and M86. So now we go to those two, and we pick up here. Our next object is M87, the black hole galaxy. Well, I made up that name for that. No one calls it that. Go to M86, and from there go 0 0.6 degrees south and 1.1 degrees east to M87. 
M87 is magnitude 8.7, and it's five arc minutes in size, but it's a very massive galaxy. It stands out very well, and it's the only bright galaxy in this region. There is an 8.7 magnitude star only six arc minutes to the north of it. When I'm comet hunting this area, this is the one clue that I've picked up M87. From M87, we're going to head over to M89. And to do that, we go only a little bit north, 0.2 degrees north, and 1.2 degrees east of M87. Now, M89 is magnitude 9.1, and it's three arc minutes in, across, and it's fairly round and nondescript. It's also an elliptical galaxy, different from the typical spiral galaxies we're so used to seeing. In fact, about half the galaxies in this region are elliptical galaxies, and this one is very round. Now compare that one to the next one, and you can tell them apart very easily, because our next object is M90. And to get there, we go 3.3 degrees east and 0.7 degrees north. There's a crooked line of stars from M89 to M90. Now M90 is a spiral galaxy. It's elongated. It stands out well from those round galaxies we've been seeing. It's magnitude 9.3, and it measures 6 by 2 arc minutes in size. We have a few more galaxies to get to. We're going to go west, 1.2 degrees, and 1.2 degrees north to a brighter one, M88. It's magnitude 8.8, .8 and it's a spiral galaxy measuring fairly large 8 by 3 arc minutes. In fact, it looks something like a miniature M81. It stands out very well against the background. Next, we go to M91. It's also known as NGC 4548. This was once one of the missing Messe objects, and it may have been a passing comet. But a recent suggestion is that Messier made a mistake in plotting it and in measuring it, and he was actually looking at this one, 4548. So from M88, go only one-tenth of a degree south and eight-tenths of a degree east to M91. Now, M91 is the faintest one we'll see tonight, magnitude 9.9, .9, and three arc minutes in size. Now, if you have a large telescope in good conditions, you might see some arm structure on this one. Our next three galaxies are south, and this is going to be a jump of several degrees. We're going to go now to M58. From M91, go 0.6 degrees east and 2.7 degrees south to M58. Now, as you travel down to M58, you'll probably run past M90, which we saw a few minutes ago, and then beyond that, M89. M58 is magnitude 9.2 and 4 arc minutes across. It's a barred spiral galaxy, and in good conditions, you can see the arms. Now, there's an 8th magnitude star just west of M58. These objects, 
M58 through M61 were observed by Charles Messier in April of May, 1779, two years before he catalogued the other objects in this area. In fact, by Messier's own description, the comet of 1779 passed through this region, and while following that comet, he discovered these three galaxies, 58, 59, and 60. And M56 and M57, he also discovered those two objects two months prior when the comet passed near those objects in January 1779. So M56 through M61 were all found on account of a comet. The next one is an easy find, M59. From M58, head south two-tenths of a degree and east 1.1 degree to M59. Now this one's an elliptical galaxy. It's magnitude 9.4 and measures 3 by 2 arc minutes in size. It's different than most elliptical galaxies. This one has a sharp nucleus. Next we move to M60. Again, about one-tenth of a degree south and this time only four-tenths of a degree east. This one's slightly brighter at magnitude 9.2, and it measures 4 by 3 arc minutes. But some say it's brighter than 9.2. There is another galaxy, 4647, magnitude 11.4, sitting on the edge of M60. A couple months ago, this galaxy, 4647, had a supernova in it, and that still might be visible as about an 11th magnitude star. That concludes this group. We will hit M49, M61, and M104 at another time. To recap the podcast, what's up this coming week? Get out there on the night of May 30th, 31st, and look for that meteor shower. And see some of those Messier galaxies. You have been listening to Looking Up with Don, podcast episode number 125 for May 25th, 2022. I'm Don Mockles. Once again, the related website for this podcast is donmockles.com. That is spelled D-O-N-M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z.com, two H's. You can contact me at dontheastronomer at gmail.com. Once again, it is dontheastronomer at gmail.com. God willing and pod willing, I'll be back next week for another episode of Looking Up with Don. I'll talk a bit about the meteor shower that might or might not have occurred. All that and more. Thank you for listening. See the sky this week. I'll see you next week.